Good morning. I am reading from 2 Colossians, verse 6 through 23. So live in Christ Jesus the Lord in the same way as you received him. Be rooted and built up in him. Be established in faith and overflow with thanksgiving just as you were taught. See to it that nobody enslaves you with philosophy and foolish deception, which conform to human traditions and the way the world thinks and acts rather than in Christ. All the fullness of the deity lives in Christ's body, and you have been filled by him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not administered by human hands. The circumcision of Christ is realized in the stripping away of the whole self dominated by sin. You were buried with him through baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead, because of the... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, When you were dead, because of the things you had done wrong and because your body wasn't circumcised, God made you alive with Christ and forgave all the things you had done wrong. He destroyed the record of debt we owed with his requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to the public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal parade. So don't let anyone judge you about eating or drinking or about a festival, a new moon, observance, or Sabbath. These religious practices are only a shadow of what is coming. The body that casts the shadow is Christ. Don't let anyone who wants to practice harsh self-denial and worship angels rob you of the prize. They go into detail about what they've seen and visions and have become unjustifiably arrogant by their selfish way of thinking. Don't stay connected to the head. They don't stay connected to the head. The head nourishes and supports the whole body through the joints and the ligaments, so the body grows with a growth that is from God. If you died with Christ to the way the world thinks and acts, why do you submit to rules and regulations as though they were living in the world? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these things cease to exist when they are used. Such rules are human commandments and teachings, They look like they are wise with this self-made religion and their self-denial by the harsh treatment of the body, but they are no help against indulging in selfish, immoral behavior. As we come to God's Word this morning, let's just take a moment of silent prayer to listen as we begin. Please pray with me. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, we as a community have been in the midst of a journey through the book of Colossians, which is a a letter written by the Apostle Paul, an early Christian leader, to a church that is in modern-day Turkey. Um, You might have noticed in the passage that we just read from Colossians 2 this morning, there's something weird going on at this church. Um, One of the things I haven't mentioned um, to this point in the letter um, that might surprise you is that Paul has never met this church in Colossae. Like, he's never been there. He doesn't know these people. Paul is an overseer of a lot of churches in the Roman world. And so churches tend to get Paul's attention when he starts hearing a rumor that, like, something strange is going on with this church that somebody needs to address. 
Right? So, so, so Paul kind of swoops in at that point to address the problem. Um, now, what is the problem going on in Colossae? Well, when we're reading some of these letters in the New Testament, we're basically like eavesdropping on somebody else's mail. So you kind of have to read the letter and then reconstruct backwards. What is the situation this person is addressing? Um, so we got some little clues here as we, we read through chapter two. Um, there's something about eating and drinking, right? Like people are being judged for eating and drinking. There's something about being judged around holidays and festivals. There's um, some references, several references to harsh treatment of the body. Like people's bodies are somehow being treated badly. There's some references to like, don't taste, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that. Um, then it gets really weird. There's some stuff about angels, like angel obsession, some things about visions. Like, what is all this adding up to as a situation? Well, Christianity uh, emerges as, as a kind of movement within the broader faith of Judaism. Um, Judaism has a lot of different little branches at this time. And one of the branches of Judaism is a stream that we might think of as like mystical Judaism, um, where the people who are practicing kind of this branch of Judaism, their goal is to have visions and supernatural experiences, like some kind of supernatural encounter with the presence of God. Now, the way they thought about this is like, if you do everything right, like if, if you somehow manage to play your cards right spiritually, you can basically like ascend spiritually up to heaven and you can worship God in the presence of the angels and you can learn some of God's secrets. So that was a part of the kind of mystical strain of Judaism. And then if you go out in the broader like Greek and Roman culture that um, the Colossians were a part of, it was also a common belief in the pagan world um, that one of the things that keeps you from encountering the gods is that there are all these hostile spirits, these hostile powers that are working in the spiritual realm that are trying to keep you away from God. So if you do the right things, you can get the angels to be on your side and the angel, good angels will fight the hostile powers and then you'll be able to get to God and have some kind of cool supernatural experience. Um, so how are you going to like get up there to heaven with the angels? How are you going to get the angels on your side? Um, well, uh, the way they thought about this is the thing you really need to do if you want to have all of these amazing experiences is treat your body really badly. Like maybe starve yourself, maybe like hurt your body somehow. Like uh, Paul kind of just describes this as like harsh body treatment. Now, perhaps this strikes you as like a strange idea. Why would starving yourself or like hurting your own body help you ascend spiritually? Um, well, all of that comes out of the, the world of Greek philosophy. Um, in, in Greek philosophy in the first century, it, it was a common belief, like the spirit, the spiritual realm, all of that is good and the body is bad. Like material stuff is bad and it gets in the way. So if you can treat your body harshly, you can kind of strip the body and the material out and then you'll please God, you'll please the angels and you'll be free to kind of have this profound spiritual experience. So th this is the kind of stuff that is being taught in the church in Colossae. Um, where is it coming from? Well, the teachers who are in Colossae who were teaching this to the church are Christians. This is important to be really clear about. These are, these are Jesus-following, Jesus-worshipping 
Christians who are teaching this. Um, but the trouble is, they've kind of sucked up this stuff that's a part of the, the broader water of Jewish mysticism and Jewish law and, and pagan religion and Greek philosophy. And all of that stuff has kind of gotten swirled in with their Christianity. And they're teaching out of that combination. Now, 2,000 years later, reading this, this stuff sounds really weird. And honestly, it probably doesn't strike you as that relevant. Um, I, I don't know many people in Trinity who are like making it their life's mission to try to commune with the angels. I'm not super worried that many of you are going home to starve your body in hopes of achieving spiritual visions. I, I don't know a lot of people who are worried about hostile spiritual forces keeping them away from God. Like all of that stuff sounds pretty far from 2021. But the important thing to know is that even if all of this sounds completely crazy to us today, it sounded perfectly sane and reasonable to somebody in the first century. Like, this is what their neighbors believed. This is what was in the, the philosophical water of the culture. Everybody kind of took for granted that a lot of this stuff was true. So when it started getting mixed up in Christianity, when it started kind of folding together with the gospel, nobody in Colossae even noticed like, nobody was alarmed because the stuff was all just kind of there to begin with. And th this mixing of faith together with all this other stuff that's in the cultural water, um, we have a fancy religious word for this. Um, we call it syncretism. Um, syncretism is basically a way of naming that religious faith has a way, a tendency of being really sticky, like when, when you have religious faith and, and it's, it's sitting in kind of a, a pond with other things going on in the culture, like the other stuff that's swirling around it tends to just kind of stick to it. And in many cases, nobody notices, even when the stuff that's sticking on completely contradicts the core of the faith, right? It, it's all just kind of there and it starts swirling together. So in, in Colossians chapter two, most of the stuff that Paul is writing about in this chapter is he's kind of picking apart, like, what is all the stuff that's gotten stuck on to first century Christianity that came from other places and contradicts the core of what Jesus worshiping means? Um, for example, Paul says about the body, you know, Jesus is God incarnate. The fullness of God dwelled in the body of Jesus. That surely must mean that bodies are not a bad thing. Right? Like, if, if the fullness of God can dwell in Jesus' body, like, stripping away your body to try and somehow get to God without one really isn't the point, right? It contradicts the incarnation. I mean, Paul, Paul says, and, and listen, you know, that this idea that you somehow, you need the help of the angels to get to God, you don't need any angels. Jesus has given you full access to God. Like, Jesus has taken care of this. The, the angels are irrelevant, and this idea that somehow you're going to have some supernatural experience, that you need this like extra special visionary experience to know the secrets of God is total nonsense because Jesus has made the secrets of God known to everybody. God's secrets and Jesus have gone public. There, there's no secret to kind of ascend and go and seek out. And all of those hostile powers that you're so concerned about, those mean-spirited hostile powers that are, you're worried are getting in the way of you and God, well, you know what Jesus did? He took them all captive and he trotted them through the city streets and let everybody make fun of them. Right? The powers have been taken captive and led in parade and been mocked. They're dead. You've got nothing to worry about. 
So Paul's kind of worked his way through like these different things that are stuck on and, and he's taking them apart again. And you know, when I was, when I was um, sitting with Colossians 2 this past week and thinking about like, what am I gonna say to our community about this? Um, it, it just seemed to me, I could spend a whole sermon convincing you that all of this stuff I just mentioned is bad. Um, but the reality is you already agree with me because these aren't our problems. Right? Like the, these are first century philosophies, first century ideas that people then were stuck on. Um, these tend to be pretty foreign to people in 2021. But you know what is our problem? Syncretism is a problem in every culture, in every time. Every Christian exists in a time where ten, things are going to try and stick on to the gospel that are foreign to the gospel. Every age has that problem. And it's really hard to notice because it just kind of happens unreflectively. Now, this is a really hard question because I cannot open my Bible and give you God's inspired word on what is sticking to our gospel in 2021 that doesn't belong there. Like, all I can really do on this, I spent time this week in prayer and reflection on the gospel myself and on what's happening in our cultural water. So all I can do is offer you kind of my reflections on what I think might be stuck to our gospel right now. Um, but this is not, you know, Megan's inspired sermon. This is really, it needs to be a community discerned conversation. Like if the Apostle Paul were to come to Phoenix in 2021, what would he point to in our faith, in our culture and say, hey guys, like you've taken for granted that stuff belongs there, but it shouldn't be stuck to it. It's something else. So I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do today is throw out for you my kind of top three as I've thought and reflected on like what might be stuck to our gospel that Paul would point out. But I'm throwing this out to you, hoping that you will begin a conversation with me and with each other about whether or not I'm right, about whether there are things you are noticing that are getting stuck to our gospel that you think we need to be reflecting on and kind of pulling out. Um, so this is really an invitation to conversation um, as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to get it going, but I hope that whether you're a part of a life group or just going to lunch with people today, um, that you'll spend some time reflecting. Um, even, if, even if I make you uncomfortable and you're squirming and you think I'm wrong, great. <laughs> like, talk to somebody about why you think I'm wrong. Like, why the things I'm pointing out you think actually are compatible with Jesus. Um, let's kind of press at this together and ask, like, where have we accepted syncretism today and how do we begin to pull some of that out? Um, so, so I'm going to just give you three kind of broad areas. I'm calling these religions. They, they don't present themselves in American culture as religion, um, but I, it's important to me that we understand these are faith-based belief systems that come from other places, other ideas, other philosophies, and get stuck on to Christianity in our culture. So here are my top three. Um, number one, I'm calling this self-fulfillment religion or self-help religion. Um, those of you who spend a lot of time on like social media, this is just like all over my Christian social media feed. It's a huge market in Christian publishing. It's a huge part of the Christian podcasting world. Um, basically, I would describe self-fulfillment religion as religion that really claims what Jesus wants most is to help you live your best life now. So Jesus has the 10 financial tips that are guaranteed to give you financial success. Jesus has the tips that will give you a better marriage. Jesus will help you achieve your dreams and here's how it's gonna happen. Um, th there's like a, a secondary wing of this, this school of thought that really focuses particularly on tools and resources to help you know yourself. 
Because there's the sense, like, there are a lot of answers you need. You've got problems that need to be solved. And, and the truth is the light in you. So, so if you can use some of these tools and you can, you can know yourself deeply, then all your problems will be solved. Right? There, there, it's this blend of that self-fulfillment and that self-help, self-knowledge kind of category. Now, the thing about all of these, these uh, you know, religions that I'm about to point out, it's really important to name, there is always a hook of truth that gets you. Right? The, the only reason they stick is because there's something true there that they latch onto, but things go wrong partway through. So, so what is the truth hook of this theory? Well, Jesus did indeed say he came to give abundant life. Jesus came not because he wants you to live a miserable, rotten existence, but because he wants you to have the fullest kind of existence that God makes possible. Jesus is all about joy. I mean, all of that is true. Um, But the thing is, Jesus also says that the fullest life only comes when we experience a certain kind of death. And this is where self-fulfillment religion sort of gets off the Jesus bus. True, true life, Jesus says, only comes with a kind of death. In Romans 6, Paul talks about it in this way. Paul says, this is what we know. The person we used to be was crucified with Jesus in order to get rid of the corpse that had been controlled by sin That way we wouldn't be slaves to sin anymore because a person who's died has been freed from sin's power. I mean, Paul is basically saying here, there are certain things that if you want to be a true person, a true self, the self God designed you to be, there are certain things in you that are going to have to die. There are false things. There's a false version of yourself that has become distorted away from the fullness of God, and that's going to have to die for you to truly live. Now, I think Paul took this straight from Jesus. Um, In Mark chapter 8, we read this reference last week. Jesus says to his followers, all who want to come after me must first say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For all who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will find them. Jesus says the only way to truly live is if you find something bigger than you worth dying for. Like if you want the fullest life, if you want to be fully alive, it's never going to be enough to just fulfill your own desires. The only way to truly live is to lose yourself in some way for something bigger than you. I mean, even this idea of self-knowledge, self-knowledge actually is super important. That's another hook of truth, right? Like, self-knowledge is one of the keys to spiritual growth. Um, But the problem is that real self-knowledge is really hard to gain. Like, a a five-minute internet assessment will not give you self-knowledge. The problem is we are not reliable narrators of our own lives and our own motives. Not all the things we tell ourselves about ourselves are true, and even the things that are true aren't always worthy things. Like, self-knowledge alone doesn't get us anywhere. We need something more than just knowing. 
We, we need a way of weighing, of discerning. Um, and more than that, sometimes the, the only way we can really see the truth of ourselves is to have ourself not, not just held up to us, but held up to next to Jesus. And all of a sudden we see ourselves more clearly when we're looking at him. Right? Like self-knowledge, sometimes it's like this giant black hole where you look into yourself and you just kind of fall inward into the black hole, right? It's not taking you somewhere. Um, sometimes what we need to, is to look outward beyond ourselves and see ourselves in the light of Jesus. Self-help religion gets stuck on to Christianity a lot in the West. All right, number two. Well, what's the second thing that's kind of in the water? I'm going to call this one freedom religion. And this is a real problem for us in an American context, and I, I think it's a problem that goes back to the very origin of, of our culture, of our country. Um, we are a country that values freedom extremely highly among our values, and so many of us, it, it kind of seems natural to say our, to ourselves, freedom is really important, and God loves freedom, and the work in the God, of God in the world is primarily to maximize every person's personal freedom. And when this comes up, you often hear people say things like, no one should be able to tell me what to do except for God and my own conscience. Or you might hear someone say, like, I, I don't need the church, I don't need a community, all that I really need are me and the Holy Spirit and my Bible. Now, hook of truth, right? There's always some truth here. Um, the hook of truth is really big and important Jesus came to free the captives. That is what he's all about. Like Jesus, above almost anything else, is come, comes to us as a liberator. Jesus wants to free the slaves. Freedom is really core to what Jesus came to bring. But Jesus doesn't define freedom the same way American culture defines freedom. And this is where we start getting confused. Freedom in Jesus' definition is not the ability of every individual person to do what seems best in their own eyes. That, that's an American definition of freedom, not a Jesus definition. I mean, if you were to reduce all of Christianity to one short phrase, um, the early Christians would say simply, Jesus is Lord. Christianity in three words, Jesus is Lord. Um, Lord is a word acknowledging somebody who is in authority. Every time we say or we sing Jesus is Lord, we are saying somebody has authority over me. I'm submitting to someone. In 1 Corinthians 6, um, Paul puts it like this. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourselves? You've been bought and paid for, so honor God with your body. I mean, Paul says, you're not your own anymore. You've been freed from all the things that used to enslave you, so you can belong to one person, so you can be obedient to one person. You belong to Jesus. You aren't yours, you're his. That's, that's the space in which your freedom is now operative. You are free as a servant of Jesus. Jesus himself goes even farther than this. Um, Matthew 18, um, Jesus is talking about the, the new community he's forming, and he says this, I assure you that whatever you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. Pause, note, English is a very confusing language because we don't distinguish between you 
singular and you plural as a community. Um, this is not singular. It's not whatever you personally fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. That This you is collective. It's plural. Now, Paul, Paul isn't super worried here. Is the authority going to like, is it to to two people or three people or a thousand people or what institutional church or what denomination. Jesus is not like caught up in like the particularity here. What he's saying is there is an authority that has been given to you all, the community of my disciples, that whatever you all fasten together will be fastened in heaven. Whatever you all loose on earth will be loosed. Going on, Jesus says, next slide. There we go. If any two of you on earth agree about anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. Jesus is designating this profound kind of spiritual authority not to the individuals who follow him, but to the community, the gathered community of disciples. So we we are bound, our freedom is exercised not just beneath Jesus as Lord, but our freedom is exercised in a community that is given authority to discern and bind and loose and forgive and hold accountable together. And just to push this one smidge farther, in America we really like to talk in the language of rights, and rights are like the ultimate American trump card. If you can say, it's my right to do this, that overrides everything, right? Well, Paul, in Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking um, not explicitly about rights, but that's really what he's discussing. And he's talking about this debate Christians are having over whether or not it's okay to eat certain meat. And Paul says this, Don't destroy what God has done because of food. All food is acceptable, but it's a bad thing if it trips someone else. It's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that trips your brother or sister. In other words, your right to eat meat is not the ultimate question as a Christian. A Jesus follower at the end of the day, the real question is not what is your right to do. The question is what is your brother or sister next to you need? Christians are people who surrender their rights for the sake of other people, for the good of other people. That's a whole different model of thinking about how we carry our rights as Jesus people. All right. Let's hit the third one. Is anybody squirming yet? If I haven't made you uncomfortable yet, I've saved the worst for last. Um, This third and final one I'm going to throw out here today, I'm calling power religion. Power religion. Now, I truly don't think that this one is a unique American phenomenon. I think, like, most of the Christian West has been struggling with this for 1,700 years and just really struggling to think past it. It's so deep in our intuition and in our cultural water. Um, But basically, power religion begins in a, a logic, a way of thinking that goes like this. God really wants everything in the world to be better. God wants everything to be better, and the best way for things to be better is for Christians to gather together their collective power and to exercise all of their power they can to take control of institutions, whether they're political or governmental or cultural, to take control of everything and steer it toward what God wants. Now, Christians have always disagreed on what exactly God wants or what's most important. Like, we have lots of kind of infighting among ourselves as Jesus people on which things we're supposed to be fighting for. But what all of us can seemingly agree on is that in Jesus' name, we as Christians are supposed to take the wheel and steer the thing where it's meant to go. Now, hook of truth, right? Always hook of truth. 
This one is a really big hook. There's something really true about this. Like, God really, really wants the world to be better. That is absolutely true. Like, God wants the poor to be fed and cared for. God wants life to be treated as sacred. God wants people to act justly and nations to act justly. God wants forgiveness to be possible. All of those are things that God wants for the world. But what's the problem? Well, Jesus, the the temptation that Jesus most consistently in his human life struggled with through his whole ministry was this temptation. To know that God wants things to be better and to take the next step and say, and therefore God wants me by any means necessary to take the wheel and take control. This comes up at the very start of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4. When when the devil comes to tempt Jesus, the devil led Jesus to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said, I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. I'll give them to you, Jesus. You can do what you want. You can feed the poor. You can make justice happen, Jesus. It's been entrusted to me, and I can give it to anyone who I want. And therefore, if you worship me, if you'll just do this thing my way, it'll all be yours, and I'll let you run it. And Jesus answered, it's written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus had his finger on this as one of the most profound temptations that he and his followers would face. It's the temptation of well-intended people. But as long as we take the sword and hold it over other people's necks in the name of achieving something good, we are still playing evil's game. It's the same game being played over and over again. Jesus saw something no human before him and seemingly no human after him has managed to grasp. There is only one way fundamentally to disrupt and disarm the powers that have a hold of the world. These evil powers that are controlling and distorting. The only way to do it is through the self-sacrificial love of the cross. The cross is the only power strong enough to disrupt the powers of evil. In one of my favorite texts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about just how crazy this sounds. He says, We preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. It sounds crazy. But to those who are called, the Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul is saying power shaped like a cross, it sounds like complete foolishness. It sounds like complete madness to any person who does any human philosophy. But Christ has revealed the true shape of power that will change the world. The church is called to exert power for change. Absolutely, we are called to exert power for change. The question is, what kind of power? We Christians, we are the people of the cross. We we are the people who are living by a radical new revelation about what power looks like. This power of the cross, it comes from under people rather than over people. It's a power that operates through love rather than through force. 
I mean, I think this redefinition of power is so hard to believe that the church again and again has said, no thanks, Jesus, and taken the devil up on his offer because the devil seems more reasonable than Jesus does. This is power religion that the West has been struggling with for centuries and centuries. It's so much in the water, it's hard to think beyond it. All right, that's it. That's all you're hearing from me this morning. These are my observations. I made a big list this week, but these are my top three um, that I really think are in the cultural water and are getting sucked into our Christianity in ways that contradict Jesus, but, but we don't tend to notice. Um, because just like the stuff, the Colossians, the stuff that stuck to their Christianity, it seems really obvious to us 2,000 years later, right? Like, worshiping angels, pfft, who does that? Like 2,000 years from now, the stuff we're doing is going to look just as obvious to the people looking on the outside in. But the problem is it's in the water for us, just like it was in for them. It's really hard to see the things that are closest to you. So it's so critical that we as a community have some conversation together and begin to reflect to be sure that what we are following is Jesus, not, not the philosophies, not the ideas of our time. So again, this is an invitation to conversation. If you have thoughts, I would love to hear them. Um, what do you see in the water? What do you think is attaching? What, what do we need to be attending to as Jesus people in this time, in this place? Let's spend a final moment in prayer together. God, you are the God of truth, and we are people seeking truth, to know the world as it truly is to see reality clearly instead of through our distorted glasses. But Lord, we confess our lenses are distorted. We see so much through the lens of our time and our culture. It seems so natural and so obvious, it's really hard to see what is of you and what isn't. What belongs to your gospel and what is intruding on it, contradicting it resisting your spirit in the ways that you're working. And Jesus, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would clear our vision so we can see our world more clearly. Show us what is true and right and excellent and praiseworthy. Show us what needs, to be what needs to die, what needs to be stripped off and left behind because it doesn't belong to your truth or your abundant life. Lord, only you can make these things visible to us. So we are looking for your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.